0: What is up, Baton Rouge? Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Tiger Pride Podcast presented by Two Two Five Magazine. I'm Mark Clements here, as always, with the one and only Jarrett Roser of TigerDetails.com. He's fresh off the plane, Konnichiwa, Jarrett. Can't finish that. Now. No, uh, that was I
1: really. That's one of my favorite Kanye lyrics. Uh.
0: That's a, that's a good one. Um, LSU beats UCF in the PlayStation Fiesta Bowl, forty to thirty-two honestly probably wasn't really supposed to be that close when you look at stats on paper but just uh you really you just flew in a couple hours ago um how was the trip overall and how was it um this sort of the atmosphere uh especially after the fact when lsu knocks off ucf and snaps their 25 game winning streak defending national champs all that jazz
1: i mean it was a game that any any questions and i think we talked about this previously any questions about lsu's interest being a part of that game were pretty quickly dismissed so much was made of Auburn not being interested in that that Peach Bowl last year against UCF and that being kind of the excuse for those Tigers fall against the Knights to help that long winning streak continue and there was never there was never an issue with LSU in that regard you know out there on the front end they were loose and but but focused they were having fun they were enjoying the moment but you could tell that they were very driven to get those ten wins. They took care of business. It, it wasn't like some notable bowl weeks past where where they were having a little bit too much fun and the priorities were out of whack. and And so they went in, and that game meant a lot to them. Mm-hmm. And they got the win, and it was big celebration after for the team. Very excited about, you know, I, I think they took some pride in knocking off that that kind of what has gotten loud UCF team over the last couple of years. It's a little bit arrogant, but they kind of seem a little bit arrogant. I mean, (laughs) but as much as anything, I think they were just happy for what that meant for them to win 10 games for the first time since 2013 Mm -hmm. with a team that so many people had doubted early in the season. And I think it was just a lot of excitement for what they had accomplished uh, themselves.
0: And I think if, if there was any (laughs) questions about whether they, if they were motivated or cared I think once Joe Burrow got crushed on that crackback hit after the, the interception, that kind of that got him fired up. If nothing else uh, would have, did you think that should have been a flag? I don't in know, in some man. capacity. I I'm not sold on the on the targeting aspect of it, but is that not a defenseless player? I I to me, it should have been a personal foul flag, not necessarily a targeting flag. I don't know if you could.
1: Yeah, I just. I have such a difficult time keeping up with with some of those changes over the last couple of years, and getting getting really aggressive about about my stance on them. And a lot of people point at the refs and talk about how poor of a job the refs do in determining these things. I think they're in kind of a bad spot too, because yeah. so the way the game has gone and all the issues with concussion. Dynamics and just more information available on that through the last five to ten years, and this increased push for player safety, the NFL and NCAA both have to do something to try and help the situation because it's it's become a really bad deal for a lot of guys. Uh, I said later on in life, but not that late for mm-hmm. a lot of these guys, and so they have to make these rules and. I don't think they necessarily do a good job of writing them necessarily or having the referees understand and have a clear picture of what they're looking for. And then you have referees in the speed of these games trying to make these determinations off of new rules and make these these calls. And then you have players who are tackling, in a lot of cases, the same way they have been taught their entire lives, their dads and uncles were taught, etc., right. etc. Cetera, et cetera. And so you're expecting them to make adjustments, referees to make adjustments, all on... Rules that are new and probably not as as well and specifically stated and and so I don't I don't know what I look at on that play because honestly I mean when we were kids that's that kind of what you do that's, right. what, that's that was, what you tell your defenders to do in a pick an in interception that situation was,
0: that was the stuff you saw like on the jacked up segments you know those are the kind of hits you looked for that yeah. kind of got you fired up about football you know that's like the culture right that we grew up in. My my biggest issue is not necessarily whether that's called or not. It's just the inconsistency. Yeah. When like, like Denver White is obviously the prime example people use here and how light that hit seemed right. to be in, in the grand scheme and then Joe Burrow gets crushed. That's what's tough to swallow
1: because all right, so maybe maybe the helmet of Joey Connors doesn't hit the helmet of Joe right. Burrow and things like that and at some point at the end there ends up being some contact to the helmet of of a quarterback against Devin White, they say, but, I mean, you look at those two and you know which one was more of a risk to the player's safety, and so, at the end of the day, if it's all about player safety, you can, without knowing any rules, look at the two and realize that Joe Burrow was in more serious danger in that situation, but... That the rules aren't written, hey, just make this a judgment call, who might have been hurt worse, and base
0: it off of that, so it's I'd almost it's, rather that be the rule than than them, like whenever they call the one on Devin White, they say by letter of the law, he made contact with his helmet, okay, like yeah, by letter of the law, yes, by letter of the law, but that's the law is flawed, and I know they won't ever do this, but I almost just wish there was like a common sense rule, like just watch the play, and like was that obscenely dangerous, like for Joe Burrows like yeah, that was that was bad for Devin White it's like, no, that was not obscenely dangerous chill out with his you know with the flags. Um yeah, it's it's just a it's a tough spot. O said
1: after the game that he certainly mm-hmm. thought that that play was was a targeting. You could tell he was pretty fired up. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. And and it was it was a tough moment and one that that had the the opportunity to either put Joe Burrow and and that team to sleep as as UCF goes up 14 to 3. In their offensive possession, had just marched mm-hmm. right down the field, six yards, six—I mean, six plays, six and nine yards, minute thirty-eight to go up seven-three, and then turn around and have the longest interception return in Fiesta Bowl history, and the fourth longest in Central Florida history. And so things did not look good. It Looked like it could have been a long day for the Tigers, but instead, it really woke them up. And and Joe Burrow went from having started the game two for six. For 31 yards and an interception, to then finishing whatever the rest of he completed like 70
0: percent right. the rest of the way and and had
1: 363 yards and four touchdowns after that.
0: Talk about gritty. We talk, we use that word on Joe a lot and it's kind of a catchword this year overall. But man, to come back from that whenever, I mean he was pretty. You <laughs> were there after the game when he said you know I would have gotten up immediately mm-hmm. if the win wasn't not that of him. And that's a that's a tough dude and um that's. That's the attitude
1: that pulled this team behind him when he arrives during the summer well after spring football is done and is suddenly in competition with guys that everyone on this team had known for a while and really, really appreciated. Even following their transfers, these guys still support Justin McMillan, Llewell Narcisse, and there's a really strong bond there. So Joe comes in to the middle of that and ends up being the starting quarterback over those guys that they support but the way he's carried himself, that toughness, all of those intangibles is what really in, endeared him to his new teammates very quickly and allowed him to become the leader for this team that he has become very quickly and has played a big part in the team having that, that same sort of mentality and, and that same uh, personality. Is He's like that, Devin White's like that, a lot of the key players – have that type of attitude and when your quarterback is carrying himself that way it's it's tough for anyone else on the
0: field to not safe to say that was his best game as an LH Tiger well best game of his college career yeah I think so even he, with the pick six he yeah I mean with the pick six I go back a little bit to I mean, Dylan kind of fell a little bit on that route so I don't, yeah. I, don't how, I mean it, was not, it wasn't a great throw but I don't know how much Dylan could at least interfere with that with the pass if he doesn't kind of slip on that comeback.
1: Yeah, there was um you know, there there was some things happening in the mm-hmm. the secondary on that play. But I go back to as much as much as Jarrett Lee got beat up for all the pick sixes he threw I mean the quarterback throws the interception and sometimes there's other things that play there, but the there's eleven dudes trying to tackle that guy. It's not Joe Burrow's job to tackle him and Joe Burrow tried to go get him <laughs> no, and got did. rocked. Um and And so, yeah, I I mean, that was not, obviously not a a great play, but in terms of the overall performance, it was one of his top passing efforts right up there with Ole Miss Mm -hmm. and Rice, and UCF is far better than either one of those teams. And as much as people talk about the offense and kind of overlook UCF's defense, because UCF can't stop anyone on the ground, UCF's secondary is actually pretty decent. They've got some, some guys that... That, I mean, really across that secondary yeah. can play could play. It was really and, the run defense that was their yeah. big bugaboo. Not they could play anywhere in the country, and they came into the to the game with the fifteenth best passer rating allowed by defenses. And Joe Burrow came out and did that, and so I thought it was a great performance by him. And. I thought it was a great performance by the young receivers Mm -hmm. uh, with with all that time to prep for that game. You saw Jamar Chase come a little bit of a coming out party on the big stage, and I thought it was a really nice game for the offensive line to allow all of that to get started because Joe Burrow had more time to throw than he has, if not at any point this season, than almost any point this season, and I think that was a, a big part of that success.
0: Yeah, and he seemed to move well in the pocket to kind of create a little bit of time for himself. Bleacher
1: um, Report saying, you know, he needs to be included in that early 2019 Heisman.
0: Oh, calm down. The, uh, i do not about all that.
1: <laughs> the prisoners of the moment that Bleacher Report.
0: i do not about make. all that. I mean, he's a, he's a very, very solid quarterback, and I think LSU is in really good hands moving forward. He was the most
1: successful quarterback in State Farm Stadium yesterday, or two
0: days ago by the time the stairs. That, that is very true. Um, this game started, man, it was kind of action packed from the get go. You look at Clyde's return on the opening kickoff.
1: Good for Clyde.
0: Yeah, yeah. Great to see. But then LSU stalls and only ends up with three, which is something that we've talked about their red zone issues. First of all, Joe Burrow got in the end zone, his run. I don't know why there was no challenge there because his body did not seem like it was down, and he pretty yeah. confident he got the ball across. Um, well, they had to wait and use the challenges later to, to run at timeouts in the second half. That was solid. Then you see, like you mentioned, UCF down the field and scores pretty quick, and then the pick six, and all of a sudden it's fourteen to three. Joe Burrow is on the ground trying to catch his breath. He's bleeding from the neck. UCF is going nuts and New Orleans native Nate Evans is
1: is standing over Joe spitting or fake spitting or whatever
0: the hell. I couldn't tell if he was talking trash or spitting, but either way, it was kind of a trashy look. Um I don't know, man. That game could have gotten not out of hand, but if you don't score on that next drive, um, and it's you put the ball back in UCF's hands, and maybe they start putting together some more points, that could have gotten a little a little cushion. Um, so props to the offense, man. They were fantastic all day. Obviously, outgained UCF 555 yards to 250, and the time of possession was. Unbelievable! Forty-four and a half minutes to fifteen and a half, which is the
1: most lopsided. That's LSU has won a time of possession in the history of recorded time of possession <laughs> no, for this program. No. Yeah, I saw Todd Pollitz uh, tweet that. He, always coming through. He uh, yeah he w- he went back and as as far back as they have recorded that stat, it's the best that LSU has ever won. That is at. insane, and that's I mean that's
0: the key to it. And UCF we can get into kind of where they stand nationally in a minute, but the, but for, yeah, you, they are a good offense. And the way you stop a good offense is take the ball out of their hands, which is exactly what LSU did. You mentioned
1: the, the magnitude of that turnaround from that point that it was 14 to three LSU then goes on to score 37 of the next 47 points. Mm-hmm. So a 37 to 10 run to go up 40 to 24 until that, that late touchdown kind of made things a little bit nervous uh, for, for a couple of moments there, but is, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the offense did a great job of controlling the ball and they did I mean, credit to LSU's offense. You the LSU defense was fantastic. Yeah. And as fast as UCF tries to move, if you're a an offense that tries to go that speed and things aren't working, then that's that's kind of it's kind of a live by the three, die by the three situation. You live by that tempo, you die by the tempo, and so for them to struggle against LSU's defense as much as they did. They were giving the ball
0: right back to LSU's offense mm-hmm. very quickly. And, golly, I mean, let's go through some of the dudes not playing on this defense. We we were just talking about it before we started the the podcast of how many... They were down from... when From your day one starters, by the end of that game, they were down to four of your starters. and I don't, I mean, we didn't even get into how many of those were not even... Not only not starters, but like third... I mean, you had... Manny netherly playing just about every snap and that's a dude who's a receiver yeah I, had been switching over but going in you
1: had terrence alexander and Kerry vincent jr as your starting corners and behind them were last year's wide receiver signee manny netherly who has been transitioning mm-hmm. for the last year to be a cornerback and then Jontre kirkland who had been moved from corner to wide receiver uh i guess about two and a half months ago now and that that was pretty much it you had those two two cornerbacks the two receivers and those were your cornerbacks and we talked a lot about that with all those absences and then obviously terrence alexander ends up ejected in the first half but up front all you end up having is Rashad lawrence glenn logan uh a redshirt freshman, nose tackle Tyler Shelvin that they've been trying to get into shape all season has just started to he played pretty well, though. get some more playing time late. Yeah, he, he, he held his own given the circumstances. And then Justin Thomas, who's, who's barely played most of this year, and those were the only four guys that used up front. That's why they come out with two down linemen, Glenn and, and Richard, and tried to give a, a lot of different looks and, and rely on those linebackers that
0: were the healthiest unit to, to mm-hmm. kind of carry some of that weight. It's just insane how thin LSU ends up being on the defensive side of the ball and still had some, I mean, pretty good success. I know UCF has scored at least 30 points in all of their 25 straight wins, and now I guess 26 straight games, Um, and they still break 30 there at the end of the game, but man, um, to limit what is a pretty good offense when you're that limited on defense, and really, I mean, obviously seven of those came from the pick six, and then... The fumbled punt, which was, yeah, yeah you, gave him, you kind of gave them three points. There it was really 10 points you kind of just, you kind of gave to them. Um, I guess that's the one complaint I have about this game, and it's hard to complain. Was it's, the punt return? Well, I don't know that, but I almost, I, left, I had lost my phone. I was going to tweet at you about some kind of snarker remark about the punt returns. That's, I just, they got some weird voodoo on that punt returner. I don't know what the issue is.
1: I, yeah, I told you, Darren. When I tweeted at you during the game, I wasn't going to comment further than the fact that what had happened just happened. I just – I started to type something. I was like, man, there's no way – Jonathan Giles is over on the sideline concussed, or I'm pretty sure is what had him out of that game, is, yeah. is recovering from a concussion. And I'm not about to, like, beat that dude up now because another <laughs> dude just made the same mistake. Like, just – let's just leave him alone. But He almost,
0: he almost caught that and was, like, down – I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the rule is on a fair catch, but he had the ball. It seemed like he had possession, elbow hit, ball popped out. But I don't know if that's got to have possession for longer than that. I'm not sure. But the the one thing I was going gonna to say was kind of a downfall of this game was the red zone offense. For as well as you put together drives and burn clock, you had Cole Tracy kicking 24, 28, 28, and 26 yard field goals.
1: They had to get him the record, man.
0: I mean, they got him the record, but – Golly! If you turn that's, just half those into six instead of three, this game is not even close. This game is you're in the you're pushing sixty and you're almost double. You know what I mean? Like this game's not even close. And if
1: if beggars had ponies, then we, no. If if, if wishes <laughs> were ponies, then beggars would ride. Um, <laughs> I was trying to remember. That's, yeah. So that's been the book on LSU's offense. No man, all it's just like
0: though. it's just frustrating to see that when you have a month to prepare, you can't draw up some kind of reds. I mean, you got a bunch of six five receivers out there. You can't just like get a jump ball for me like just something man. Well, now they got a whole off season to figure yeah, out cuz all those dudes yeah, are do. back
1: and that's that is as much of an Achilles heel as if the offensive line can protect the way they did on Tuesday, then the red zone offense is as much of an Achilles heel as that offense has going into 2019 and maybe as much of a determining factor of whether that team is a knock on wood playoff contender or you know, just another decent SEC team.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to spend next week looking at kind of next year and talking a little bit about some of the guys we think might sign and just sort of how this team rounds out next year. Maybe we'll have a Devin White decision by then. Um, we'll be anxiously awaiting his decision until then. But um, I also want to touch on, this is kind of going back to the Burrow hit and everything, when you saw, I mean, obviously Terrence Alexander gets tossed for rightfully so. and Just so dumb one dude. of the one of the dumbest
1: things so a smart dumb. young man has done probably
0: he went to stanford yeah he's he'd...
1: he's a sharp he's a sharp dude we t- we talked at length about his degree from stanford and the job opportunity that he was given uh, graduating from there and just some of his his interest in different virtual reality and and different <laughs> technology things that slowly but surely got over my head and my realm of understanding um Punching a dude with a helmet on, not smart, regardless of scenario. Did he hurt his hand? I don't know. I, I didn't talk to him mm. after the game. If you're if you if you're walking down the street and someone insults your sister or mother or girlfriend or whatever, punching him in the helmet isn't the smart play there. So doing so when you're one of two true cornerbacks uh, on your team that's available also is, like, is not great in particular.
0: He's played enough football to – like. I don't know what dude was saying or if he was holding I, and that doesn't matter like you put enough football to know there's gonna be trash talking going back and forth and like what could he have possibly said to make you want to take a swing at his face mask and that was that's just so dumb especially when you're that limited it's your probably potentially last game as a football player I don't think he's gonna get drafted maybe he will make a roster somewhere but I mean the, potentially your last football game in your career and that's how you're gonna go out just that that sucks yeah on the flip side, great to see Nick Brissett get his thousand yards. Um, we talked about him being kind of a big contributor, and him and Clyde both had. Well, I felt like Clyde had more than thirty-two yards, but I guess the kickoff return made it seem a little more. But um, Nick finishes with one seventeen, gets to a thousand, closes out his LSU career um, in an impressive fashion. How good was that to see you for? I mean, a guy that you've obviously followed very closely for the past what eight years almost.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh... Pretty good, and Clyde also had the he had a couple of catches, ended up with 25 yards receiving, and a, a couple of his runs, both on the ground and through the air, he just they were kind of impressive, memorable runs. Yeah, so it does seem when like a bigger impact. moved of, the
0: pile for like 10 yards.
1: Yeah, but Nick, I mean Nick is a dude that was this this big time record setting high school running back for U High, just beloved local guy. Signs with LSU goes through so many different things between his mother's illness, his losing, you know, the family losing his older brother who has been such a role model for him and such a huge part of of his life. Uh, Nick talks about him as as being such a big father figure role here, locally, and just everything that he went through there. And then football wise, as he's dealing with these things, he he gets. An opportunity fumbles kind of gets in his head loses some favor never for his first three years as a tiger kind of realizes those dreams and and makes the impact that he would have liked to have or would have expected to have made those first three years and so he comes into this year and we spend as much time I say we not just us I mean this this is kind of the was the general uh, people were doubting him and Clyde and, and those guys yep. and the uncertainty in the backfield. And I, I kept saying that it wasn't necessarily that they weren't capable, but it's just that people expected Leonard Fournette back there or Darius Geis. And then he ends up becoming the 13th player in LSU history to rush for 1,000 yards in a season. And it's, it's just it's a great way to cap off a career for a local kid here that's that's been through a lot. And regardless of all those other aspects, is just one of the, the best young guys that you'll meet. And so it, I think everyone's really happy for him at this point.
0: Yeah, that was awesome to see. Um, I saw, uh, obviously, Bruiser was kind of giving a shout out to the crowd as he was leaving. A lot of guys that ended their LSU careers, and it was on a positive note. And it's a lot. Just the conversation finishing this year with people saying LSU was going to have, s- you know, between six and eight wins, and they end up getting the tenth win and kind of defying expectations. This is it's been a it's been a fun year and we'll kind of full on recap next week on the on the on the season. But um, where do you think this puts like the conversation about moving forward in the playoff and UCF kind of wanting to fight for that last spot? Does it how how much does this kind of game sort of hurt those chances or that general idea for a, a group a group of five team trying to get into the into the playoff because to me if you can't beat a very depleted three loss lsu team it i don't know your argument's losing a lot of a lot of weight there and i think even a team like notre dame who went undefeated and then got blown out they are almost losing some some semblance of credibility when you move forward and i don't i think the committee's gonna look at these kind of games in the future and say you know maybe the the record doesn't doesn't tell the whole story
1: yeah, the, I mean the playoff took a lot of heat with the way Notre Dame lost to to Clemson in just kind of an embarrassing fashion on Saturday. I don't know that losing to LSU hurts UCF or the the group of five teams that badly because LSU for the fact that it's it's a three loss team was very highly regarded nationally and I mean they're a three loss team that's number 11 they were a two loss team that was number eight and if they had beaten Texas A&M they had a chance to be right back there at like five potentially five or six and so the strength of schedule that LSU faced I think was uh was really highly regarded and and so LSU as an opponent even with those absences on defense I think a lot of people give them a lot of credit and then UCF at the same point the same side their argument is that they're without their star quarterback, Mackenzie mm-hmm. Milton, and that they're shorthanded too. And at the end of the day, it ends up being an eight-point game. And so I I don't think that if they come back next year and are undefeated that playing a close game against LSU by any means ends up being a, all right, well, they're in because, because of how they helped themselves this week. But I don't think it necessarily knocked them back a whole heck of a lot and I, I think they just need to kind of continue to build They I agree with the sense that they would not be an undefeated or probably one lost team if they played an SEC schedule and had to deal with the week in, week out battle of of playing Florida then Georgia, then LSU right. and so on and so forth but I, I do think that they still are and kind of show that they are very capable of beating most teams in the country on any given day uh, when they, when they're able to prepare for that, that one game that there's a a lot of positive things happening in Orlando for that team. And I I think they just need to kind of continue to, to keep building on what they've done to keep building depth and notoriety and, and whatnot. And they have some, some tougher scheduled games and non-conference coming up these few seasons. And so we'll see, I think the, the regular season will start to kind of take care of itself as their their schedule gets a little bit tougher. But I think if if they have another season like this season um, against one of those tougher schedules, that they didn't hurt themselves by uh, by having
0: the game that they did against LSU. I guess I guess my overall point was I don't know if you win that game, if you beat LSU, and now you have two years in a row where you're undefeated and you beat an SEC school in your in your bowl game, that's going to look a lot better for you or you got to bode more go well for you moving forward when you continue to if you continue this winning streaks and you continue to beat big name schools but I think overall it's going to have to be like you mentioned the it's going to have to be a better regular season schedule before I think they can be legitimately considered in the in the CFP yeah. but I think beating LSU would have put them on the right track to kind of at least be more well recognized yeah kind of in the future
1: I think not beating LSU I wouldn't say it hurt them so much as it, it would have missed That's, opportunity. Right, right, yeah, right. That's a better way to phrase it. Because if they if they do get that win, I think them not getting the win, they end up being kept in about the same regard as they've been where it's okay, you're doing some great things down there, but your schedule and your resume doesn't match up to some of these teams ahead of us and now we've seen you at the end of the season and sure you won one and there's some question marks about how engaged that opponent was that time but you lost the other and you lost the other to a team that had a lot of question marks because their defense was pretty much just not on the field (laughs) Um, their starting defense and so it just it it left a lot of uncertainty I think for them where they don't get the benefit of the doubt that if they had won and suddenly they're going into next season with a 26 game winning streak and back-to-back years of beating SEC opponents in bowl season, that I think I think it was just kind of a gradual process. And rather than take another step forward, they kind of they kind of leveled off, and and they're just kind of entering next season about where they were this season. And I do think that the the Notre Dame loss kind of hurts them because That's, yeah, I agree because an undefeated Notre Dame team that played a tougher schedule than what UCF played went out there and got rocked by Clemson, and that was a Notre Dame team that, despite its resume, a lot of people looked at and said that team's not as good as Georgia, and not that Georgia did itself any favors in the Sugar Bowl, but to look at that undefeated season and that resume argument versus the the eye test team, the eye test team, yeah. I think Notre Dame losing the way Notre Dame lost hurts a lot of those teams um, that have relied on the the strength of record as opposed to the strength of schedule.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. I don't think it's going to be like they're not going to circle one game and be like, oh, well, you know, Notre Dame lost this bad to Cle-. But I think that, that's going to linger in their minds when, when they're having these discussions moving forward. And if you have, I mean, the, just for example, a one loss Ohio State or one loss Oklahoma or one loss Georgia, somebody like that, who's right on the, on the border on the outside looking in, they might get the nod over. I mean, for sure, a one-loss Notre Dame who's not in a conference, but even undefeated, you're going to have they're going to have more of a of a pause, I think, because of the way that game kind of unfolded.
1: And they really they've tried to the committee has tried to make a push toward recognizing those strength of schedules, and you saw it with LSU's kind of the benefits of the doubt for LSU after its losses and how highly ranked the Tigers remain. The committee favors you playing a tough schedule, winning big games and gives you a little bit of the benefit of the doubt if you lose a tough game against a tough opponent. And so those teams that play those really difficult schedules, like in LSU, a Georgia, and Alabama, have typically gotten more of an, an advantage, not because they're in the SEC, but because of what that schedule mm-hmm. means and how many tight games they're playing where UCF has not endured that Notre Dame has had some tough games. They've scheduled well out of conference, but I, I think some of the benefit of the doubt that Notre Dame just traditionally has always gotten is maybe starting to, to wear off because people are getting really loud in criticism of, of how poorly they have performed at the end of the season once once they get these opportunities. Um, and so I think that just encourages not only Central Florida but really teams around the country to continue to schedule these tough games to yep. have an LSU play a, a Miami that's – was supposed to be better than what Miami ended up being, or for LSU and and UT to to team up and and have those games these coming seasons.
0: That's gonna be an awesome game. I think this is kind of a similar discussion as we talked about with the targeting thing. Is there's some sense of you want it to be so black and white, and it's just not always the case. Especially, I mean, the CFP has a tough job, especially picking that. A lot of times, a three through six, those teams are all pretty pretty evenly matched, and trying to you know. Again, you can't just rely on just the eye test, but sometimes that the common sense factor just outweighs what you what you can put on paper. But that's it's just a, it's a really tough spot to be in. It's
1: it's tough because you have different conferences, mm-hmm. you have different styles of offense, defense, et cetera, et cetera. You have eighteen to twenty two year old dudes who, on any given day, look a whole lot different in terms of how well they're executing and how locked in they are. Ohio State, Purdue, the, <laughs> yeah, on on the next day, and so trying to judge all of those things. Is like you're judging an apple and an orange and a Twix bar and a lug wrench and and a zebra. Yeah, and trying to figure out. All right, so which of these is the best yeah. thing? To, which of these is the best
0: noun? <laughs> yeah, right. Person, place, thing idea. Um, no, yeah, I totally agree. This it's it's really tough, but I think, man, i I've, I've been lobbying for an eight team situation. A lot of people don't like that because it I don't there's. I mean, there's obviously pros and cons. To every there's no there is no perfect formula, or we'd have it, you know. So just, it's just kind of a matter of preference. I'm I'm just more. If you want to limit the number of, to me, if you want to limit the number of arguments or diminish the the value of that argument, if you have eight teams with five conference champions and three at large spots, you're always going to have somebody on the right on the outside looking in. You always will, but to me, that argument just carries so much less weight if you're number nine and ten trying to lobby for that eight spot than if you're number five, trying to lobby for a four spot. That's just my opinion.
1: But then we're going to go out there and have three blowouts. I, Dude, watching the semifinal games on Saturday, it was almost like, why don't we just have a two team playoff? Uh, yeah. Well, because with the they were pretty state lopsided. of college football now. Yeah. Honestly. So going the changes, the changes over the last 20 years and going from the old system where it's just kind of polls set up these, um, set up these bowl matchups and then whoever ends up being the highest ranked in the poll is, is who gets crowned the national champion of, of that poll and some of those split championships. Mm-hmm. Going from that to the BCS to then the the playoff and you know Coach Heupel was, was pretty and certainly he for UCF they want to see more teams in the playoff because they want to have right. an opportunity to get in there but he said he thinks it's an, an inevitability that that ends up happening and he's not the first person to say he thinks that's the direction that it goes ultimately. So moving farther down the line to to eight teams, just the fact that the conversation has panned out in actual changes means that no matter where we are, people are going to continue to debate it because they've seen it change before and they've seen it change again. And so people are going to continue to push for it to change one way or another. Yep. And so when there's eight, People are either going to complain about how it needs to go back to four, or go to six, or go to sixteen. And if it got to sixteen, people would still complain and just try to push it because they've seen it happen. And so the door has been open—the Pandora's box of that conversation is now wide open and empty because it's all over the world.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I just wish there was eight. I would. I would. I, I would stop. I would stop complaining at eight. <laughs> Marcy, <laughs> whatever, dude. Just give me eight. <laughs> just give me. That's the eight. That's all I need. I think you have some really fun matchups, and I think it kind of. I mean, it's hard to say, like, yeah. Like right now, it it would seems have finally like,
1: gotten Bama like they
0: wanted for the last Hey, okay, like, Yeah, I mean, that game would have sucked. But, like, <laughs> you could have had, I don't know, who's seven? Ohio State, maybe? or Someone up in there? Yeah. I, I think like that game versus Clemson would have been way more enjoyable than Notre Dame-Clemson, I think. I don't know. It's hard to say because the state of college football is so weird right now with – I mean, this is literally the Clemson-Bama Bowl at the end of the year every year. It's just at the moment. I don't know how long it's going to last until – Saban retires or something, but um, I think I, I, these past five years, I think, are kind of the outlier when there's never been a team this dominant, a program this dominant for this long. That seems like I mean, kind of the outlier. Where were we five years ago on Clemson? Five years ago, Clemson
1: was was every other team in this conversation. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's going to like, be... like, man, Clem, Clemson's good, but they're going to Clemson it, and they're going right. to lose. They're going to Ohio State it, whatever. And then Clemson just did what it needed to do, to which is I simplify that way too much. It makes it makes like look. I know what you mean. They just played you know, football, they, idiots. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Clemson got itself into that same sort of stratosphere as Bama a little bit. I mean, they're still not. It's not the same. They're not on quite even, right. but they're at least competitive. Field. But but yeah, Clemson got into at least the same ballpark as Alabama. And so it's not, it's not something that's impossible. You just no. I just, I just, and I don't think Clemson or Bama. We've had that conversation before. I don't think you should knock
0: the teams that are doing well. No, get better. Yeah, but I. I, I guess my point was, I think this is kind of. There's never been a stretch of college football, and I know Clemson's getting getting to that point where they're almost on Bama's level. But there's has no, been no stretch of college football that has been this dominant by one program. For this long, that's what happens when you have, and it's just sorry, Baton Rouge, but the the greatest coach in yeah, in the game of all time ever. If you can start arguing with the greatest coach of any of sport, anything, anything, yeah. yeah, just put him up there with. Uh, <laughs> when my brother was little, I was a pretty good youth basketball coach. Were you? No, Not- <laughs> we won seventh in nationals in girls was, AAU. We were we were all right.
1: I I don't know how I still have hair because coaching children is. Hey, much love to the youth coaches of America. Uh, no, yeah, it's the shout most out. frustrating thing.
0: Man, having to coach high school girls basketball was one of the trickiest endeavors of my very short coaching career. But hey, seven ten nationals. Shout out to my Livingston ladies. <laughs> um, I, ju- I almost called you Joe Jarrett. I might, give away, I might give away my my answer here. Oh, for the last time this season, players of the game, um, offensive. So you you're
1: letting me go first. You've already hinted at who you want to take. Well, I mean, that, that there's,
0: there is an obvious answer, but I, I've got my backups in place. So just like just yeah, just go first. You already said it, Joe Joey Joey B. Yeah, gets ear hold, dude gets up, swaggy McSwag. swag, third for three three ninety four four touchdowns, um, another twenty four yards on the ground. I mean, just his best outing in in college, and I think. If there was any not doubts or questions but if there was any concerns about the quarterback position or is can joe burrow be like you know the guy and i don't know all that seemed to be it was it was good to see him kind of have a month off prepare for this game and and ball out today against a pretty decent pass defense um and especially with some he got so many receivers involved jamar chase had a big day jets had a big day obviously dylan with that long touchdown pass um saw steph get involved with the offense uh, with the passing game i think it was really good, not only for the performance today, but just kind of looking forward at all these receivers coming back and Joe Burrow now having a full offseason to prepare with these dudes. And he kind of hinted at sort of the, the promise he saw from, from Terrace Marshall, Jamar Chase, and Justin Jefferson, who was called Jordan Jefferson about a 1,000 times on TV the other day. But um, great performance from Joe Burrow, and got to give you a lot of confidence heading into the offseason. It's the last
1: uh, last Jefferson brother to beat Bama twice. True.
0: Um,
1: So, depending on what Justin does these next two years, Jordan may have to go down as the greatest Jefferson Jefferson. brother. Yeah. So, I mean, Joe Burrow is the Mm -hmm. answer. Heisman 2019. (laughs) I don't know how you go any other way. Gotcha. Um, But all those receivers you mentioned – were great, I think you have to mention the offensive line. I don't know yeah. if I can single out one guy as as being the player of the game from the offensive line, but if I'm taking someone other than Joe, I mentioned Jamar Chase coming out party, six six catches on seven targets. The other one was, was kind of a, a wide pass that he wasn't likely going to come down with his 93 mm-hmm. yards, a touchdown. Just I think Jamar is already showing... Has already shown that he's he's got all the tools to be a really special player, and as long as he stays focused on what he needs to do and keeps improving, keeps working, he's going to be a a guy that people remember here for a long time. Because uh, I I do think the offense has a chance to to be one of the better offenses next year that LSU's seen in a few years, mm-hmm. and I think Jamar Chase can be a a go-to in that offense for Heisman 2019, Joe Burrow.
0: Yeah, Jamar looks really good, man. He is uh I I'm, I'm I'm excited to see what he what he kinda of brings to the table. And I mean, Joey B had good things to say about Terrace Marshall, who we got a lot of action, didn't didn't record a catch in this game, but um that's gonna be a good a good duo, along with some of these dudes. I mean obviously Jefferson's a baller, his touchdown catch was sick. Um Defensively, I'll let you go first. Who you got
1: Oh yeah, the Rashard. Rashard.
0: Yeah, dude was a monster, man. He especially with you mentioned how many how limited they were defen- on the on the D line.
1: As cool. limited on the defensive line as they were, Rashard Lawrence was an animal. Went out there, got two sacks, uh, five sacks for the team. Was the most against an FBS opponent this season, and just, I mean, dominated that game. Harassed uh, DJ Mack throughout the throughout the game. gave gave the UCF offense any trouble. Gave them trouble getting anything going, and really took away their opportunity to to make that tempo be the weapon that they had hoped that it would be. Um, just, you know, the unfortunate thing for LSU fans is Richard playing that well in that game uh, may swing the needle on the is-he-back-next-year meter, but such a fantastic game by him up front.
0: Yeah. Um, Monta would be kind of a... I mean, he had a great game, but it's also been kind of a, a long time coming, but Jacoby Stevens, man, has seemed to yeah. really find himself in that kind of hybrid outside linebacker-ish type role um but he's just all over the field now he's, he's almost like that him and Grant Delpit almost play the same when they get in the box same type of position but um six tackles half a sack and of course the game ceiling interception but he just I'm so glad he finally found his role because he kind of obviously last year was a dude who bounced around and they tried him on offense they tried him at safety and never really got his foothold in at any one position and um I don't know, even earlier this year didn't didn't do a ton early on and then finally found out found that found that role, kind of playing in the box and using his sort of bigger size to his advantage. But he he's been awesome.
1: Him coming along is is a really big reason to be encouraged about that defense next year, even yeah. if they do lose some of these guys that are not seniors, to see to see him play some of the role he's been able to play, Patrick Queen come along. Um a couple other guys I think were pretty notable on Tuesday, Kerry Vincent was Yeah. I think he was targeted 3 times allowed no, no catches. catches um again all 6 days after losing his father and becoming the only cornerback on that roster with much playing experience in purple and gold and then when Terrence Alexander gets gets tossed, Kerry's pretty much the only cornerback on that roster and has that type of a type of a day and then Todd Harris ended up having to play some corner uh, which is not something he's he's really done yeah. a hell of a lot. Of. He's I mean, he played some corner in high school. Was really more of a safety. He got talked about as maybe having some corner potential as a recruit, but has always been a safety at LSU and ended up I thought being pretty solid in coverage when he had to be.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of dudes who stepped up in that game. I mean, even he's not going to lie up the Stat sheet, but even the guy we mentioned, but Tyler Shelvin, just again with how slim the defensive well. Oh. Kind of an oxymoron there. Tyler Sullivan Slim. But how with Slim three fifty O said. How's <laughs> uh as depleted as that as that D line was for him to get I think you said forty two snaps, something like that? Forty six snaps. 46, ridiculous man. Pretty double his at least double his most on the year before that. But um Yeah, he even as he
1: finally worked his way in, he was sitting there in the the like low twenties. Right. Uh for the games that he played late in the season.
0: So a lot of a lot of young dudes or a lot of backups at least um, really made their mark in this one. Uh, but we'll spend next week talking about some of the potential of heading into next year, like we mentioned a little bit at the end of this one, and maybe touch on some recruiting notes heading into. It's gonna be good. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be real both, good. Both of them. Um, heading into the, I guess, second signing period now. Uh, but be sure to follow uh, Jarrett on Twitter at Jarrett Roser and of course Tiger Details for all your recruiting and. Uh, LSU updates day to day. I'm on Twitter at Mark Clements, and again, all the 225 brands, Facebook.com slash 225 magazine, and Instagram and Twitter at 225 Baton Rouge. Thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all next week.